2: This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code Wellevator to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. Wellevator is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Today, we're going to focus on a topic that I hear come up more and more, which is anxiety. And the two women here that I have as guests are the anxiety sisters. And I feel very connected to anyone who are sisters because I have a really great relationship with my sister. (laughs) And I wish my sister would write a book with me. I wish my sister would do a podcast with me. But you know, we work in completely different fields. But one thing that my sister and I have in common is anxiety. And the two of us End up talking about that a lot more than we used to, and I don't know if that's because we're growing older and becoming more self-aware, or if it's that society, our culture, has brought anxiety more to the forefront. So I wanted to begin with this area of anxiety with Abs and Mags, the Anxiety Sisters. Today is. What have you seen shift in this world of anxiety and how does that compare to the past in terms of your careers and how you've seen the conversation around anxiety evolve over time? Do you feel like now in 2022 that it is talked about more comfortably and openly? Is it talked about a little too much and maybe out of context? Are people understanding anxiety in a different way, or perhaps even in more of like a trendy way? That's part of my curiosity. Is it becoming a trend? And is that diluting the value of anxiety? Or is it a good thing that anxiety is spoken about more often because it's helping people feel more comfortable with acknowledging
0: when they experience it? Well, first, let me start by saying, correcting you in that Mags and I are not actual sisters, although we are soul sisters. When we met in college back in the 1980s, people didn't talk about anxiety. That was not in the conversation at all. There were, you know, we didn't even have the vocabulary to talk about any mental health issues back then. It just was something that wasn't in the mainstream at all. So from that perspective, we've come a long way. Not far enough, but we've come a long way. So, you know, when Mags and I met, we both were struggling with anxiety but we didn't know to call it that. What we knew was that Mags had terrible stomach issues and she constantly was either nauseated or couldn't eat or, you know, or sick to her stomach. And so she used to say to me, "I, I don't know what I have, but I'm sure it's really bad. And then I would, I had all of the cardiac symptoms. So, you know, I had racing heart and I had dizziness and all that kind of stuff. I did not know it was anxiety. I just assumed I had bad heart and we both, pretty much thought we would die from whatever it is that we had. And that definitely kept us in fight or flight for a good part of our college time. And it wasn't until many years after college, during our decade of the is we call it, because we literally spent 10 years going to every ist that existed. Like we went to a nutritionist, the cardiologist, the therapist, the psychiatrist, the hypnotist, past life regressionist, you name it. Anyone who would take our money, we would go because we couldn't really understand what we were feeling and and how this was happening to us. And there were practitioners that were saying things like, yeah, this is anxiety, but we really didn't believe it because it was so physical. So it took us, I would say, a solid 10 years of going through, you know, going to various specialists and doctors and trying medications and doing everything until we really began to believe, okay, this is possibly anxiety as hard as that is to believe because it's so physical. So that, I guess, answers the first part of your question in terms of whether we think it's become a trend. I don't know about a trend. We're really delighted that people are willing to talk about anxiety and depression and other brain disorders all the time. For us, there can never be too much talk about it, but that may be because we're the anxiety sisters. So, you know, the trend of celebrities talking about their mental health struggles, I think is really positive because that helps those of us who aren't celebrities feel more comfortable to say, yeah, me too. I'm experiencing that too. And if that person is dealing with it, then I can maybe deal with it. And, you know, and that's why Mags and I started the community was so that people could find their tribe of fellow anxiety sufferers. So I don't know, does that answer your question enough about the trend part? It does. And I'm also still
2: smiling over here because I was fully convinced that you were actual sisters. (laughs) The dynamic between the two, like if I got the information that you weren't sisters ahead of time, it completely dissolved in my mind because as soon as I met the two of you, it felt like you had this great bond. And I guess that also comes around to how we define sisterhood, right? It doesn't have to be this biological thing. It can be this deep connection that we have with one another, which is something else I can relate to with having some really close female friends who practically feel like sisters. One of my good friends actually calls me her sister twin because we are so similar that even her husband got us kind of confused. One time (laughs) I was visiting, we kind of looked the same and he walked in to the room and thought that I was her for a moment. And we will never forget that. So (laughs) that idea of being sisters when you're not biological, I think is, is actually really neat about the two of you. And uh, do people think that you're sisters all the time? Is that, does that come up a lot? Like actual sisters, or do they they know up front that you're not?
1: Usually it doesn't come up that we're actually, people ask us a lot. I guess people do ask us a lot if we're sisters, and, and we are sisters, you know, we, neither one of us has a biological sister, but we actually are sisters, you know, in every way that matters, we're soul sisters. We're chosen sisters. And so we do have a very... We always say we definitely aren't biologically related, but we fight like we are.
2: <laughs> that was also the signal to me, too, is the way that you speak to each other. And I wouldn't say fighting, but just the, mm-hmm. the energy that sister is typically like my my sister and I have that, like some people think that we're right. being mean to each other, but you're right, like, no, exactly. this, is, this is just, just yes. how it is. And Mags, I would love to hear if, if there's anything you would add to what Ab said about whether or not anxiety feels like it's trending or how it's evolved over time. How do you feel about the shifts that we've seen in the conversation about anxiety? Hmm. I think it's an interesting question you ask because on one hand,
1: I do obviously think it's so important that we we at least are bringing up this idea of mental health more and talking about anxiety and depression and bipolar and all these different issues that were swept under the rug or just, I grew up in a house that was fairly open to talk about all of this, but still it wasn't sort of part of the whole culture. Like we didn't connect the dots a lot of times that the thing about anxiety is that it's so physical that you're getting a rash or you're getting cardiac symptoms or you you can't breathe or you're claustrophobic or you're afraid to drive. There, and there's so many physical symptoms. And so often people still don't connect those dots that the physical symptoms I am feeling are actually anxiety. It's a very hard concept for us to understand. Like even us, even us, like there are times where something will happen and I'll have a physical symptoms and I'll call Abby and say, is this anxiety? (laughs) Or, you know, do I need to go to the emergency room? Even now, it happens less and I usually call her and I know it's anxiety. But, you know, for all of us, it's a really hard thing to come to terms with. What our body can do based on anxiety, from our anxiety is just, it's, you know, it's a big one. And I think that probably the piece that I think is really important for me is how do we take, how do we teach our children and our teens and adults, how do we teach them how to take care of their health? In general, they're, and I hate to separate physical and mental health because they're really not separate. But how do we teach people to talk about their feelings and their needs and their worries? And how do we teach them to respond when other people are talking about it? Sort of like, how does this all translate into the real world? you know, and in terms of how we go about things in our lives and our structures of our education.
2: So we still have a long way to go yeah. with that piece, I think. Isn't that interesting? Because I feel like it's we're simultaneously in this time where it's more commonplace, more open to talk about anxiety, but it also feels a bit misunderstood to me. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you two would agree with that, where I don't know if people are mixing up the definitions or actually a fantastic idea that comes to mind that I was really taken aback by was on the show The Mm -hmm. Bachelor, which I watch as a quote, a, a guilty pleasure. Although even I don't feel like we should feel guilty about watching a TV show. But I think it was the most recent season, which just started airing at the beginning of this year, 2022. One of the contestants shared that she had ADHD. And there was another contestant that she was kind of bickering with who started to use that against her. And she started mocking her for that. And I recently started uncovering where I'm at on the spectrum of of even autism and ADHD, which I didn't even know until recently. So this was a, a personal experience of mine of being grateful that people were talking about these things because I've gone so much of my life struggling in ways that I didn't even Feel conscious of, I just thought, like, oh, this is me. These are my struggles. And I just have to deal with them. I don't, I don't, they're not going to change and nobody's going to accommodate me. That was something I internalized a lot until I started working with a therapist who actually helped me identify how much anxiety I was facing under the surface. But, anyways, when I started to learn more about ADHD, I grew a lot of compassion for other people that have that. And When I saw this on the TV show, I felt so simultaneously heartbroken, but really taken aback that in 2022 or or 2021, when they recorded the show, these women in their 20s who as a generation seem very kind of woke and open-minded and accepting of one another, even they as a generation still feel confused and not very accepting of other people's mental health and I think that probably comes up a lot more than we even realize if we aren't showcasing it on a reality TV show or social media. And I guess, yeah, I still feel a bit perplexed. Like, why does that happen? If we are talking about mental health so commonly, what do you two come across in, in your work and in your discussions on podcasts about how the world maybe doesn't fully accept mental health issues, even the common ones like anxiety?
0: I think that, The good news is that people are willing to talk about symptoms and about the experience of anxiety and depression and ADHD and other similar disorders. That part is great. And Mags and I celebrate that. And that's what we're about, too, is deepening that conversation. We also feel that we have a long way to go when it comes to people actually understanding that someone's anxiety or depression might keep them from, let's say, keeping a commitment or showing up to the carpool line, you know, to pick up their child. In other words, people, it's all well and good that we claim to have anxiety and depression, and that's something people now say, oh, okay, yes, that's a legitimate thing. But we still believe that people don't really understand just how debilitating it can be. That somehow, because it's an invisible illness or an invisible disorder, You know, we're not wearing a cast like you do when you break your leg. And there's no blood test yet that tells us that we have anxiety. So, you know, it's invisible to the outside. And this means that when you tell someone, you know, I am having such a rough day with my obsessive compulsive disorder, I just don't think I can make it to book club tonight. Then you still get met with the, oh, well, we're not going to really be doing anything. We're just going to be relaxed and hanging out together. And that says, I don't really understand what anxiety is, what anxiety disorder is. And the same is true for depression. It can be true for ADHD. So I think that that's where Mags and I fall in terms of, you know, we believe we've come a long way and we really are celebrating the conversation that's out there, but we have a long ways to go. I
2: love that you brought up that example because learning more about this has opened my eyes to all the times in my life where I've either felt things like that personally, but was afraid to share with others out of fear of being misunderstood. But also the times that other people have expressed things like that to me, and I didn't understand them. One of my really close friends since we were a few years old, I mean, I've been fortunate to know her since nursery school. When we were teenagers, she shared that she had anxiety, and I didn't know what that was. A, because we lived in a different time back then. But you know, it just wasn't commonly openly discussed. And I remember her, what I perceived as making excuses, right? Like, oh, she says she's not doing this because of her anxiety. Like, you know, but I was ignorant. Right. And I'm sure that that, caused a lot of judgment. I, I probably wasn't a very supportive friend because I just didn't have that awareness. She probably didn't know as a teenager how to tell me about it. I'm um, Looking back, I feel amazed that she even knew to use those words, you know, especially given how much the conversation has shifted in, in all these years. You know, there's countless of examples of when people are even afraid to say that's the reason why. They just say, no, I'm not going to come to the party or I'm not feeling well today or they cancel on you last minute. And I felt many times of feeling very frustrated, like, oh, why are they late? Why are they canceling? Why do they never show up, etc. But now I've started to look at it in a different lens, like, wow, maybe they're going through things that they're not comfortable sharing with me. Maybe they're afraid of being judged. Maybe they think that I'm going to think it's an excuse. And in turn, because I felt that way towards other people, I felt found myself holding back and not telling people that I'm feeling anxious, or I'm having a, a low mood day, or you know I'm struggling with my own neurodivergence. And it makes me want to advocate for it more. It makes me very grateful for the work that you two are doing. So I'm curious what practices come up on both sides, whether we're the ones feeling anxious and we need tools to better communicate that. And how can we be more supportive of other people who are going through that, whether they communicate that to us or not? Such a good question. You know, the other day,
1: Abs and I were having a support group with a group of women and someone said, you know, so many of my friends have fallen off during the pandemic. Someone who's experienced a lot of anxiety and depression herself. And she said, I'm just feeling so isolated, like and all these friends, they've kind of drifted off. And Abby said to her at the time, you know, I know it may seem like that, but you may want to do a check-in because you were feeling really isolated and like you couldn't reach out. And maybe you have friends feeling like that, too. You know what I mean? That that you think, oh, they're just ignoring me. They're going on with life. But everyone is feeling that way. You know, so just that idea, I think sometimes of doing that check-in with someone and just saying, you know, I know I've struggled sometimes and I notice, like, you know, you haven't been calling me back or, you know, whatever you're noticing. You're just not, you know, I notice something, whatever it is. I'm wondering, I want to check in with you. You know, I think just really gently doing that. And I think in terms of like ourselves putting out what we need and what is going on with us, a lot of it is having the vocabulary ourselves because it's impossible to tell someone else this is what I'm feeling when you don't know what it is that you're feeling. And it isn't always easy to recognize our own depression or our own anxiety even now, and I'm a social worker and I do Anxiety Sisters for a Living, and there'll be times where Abby will say to me, yeah, I think you're depressed. I think you're a little down or I think you're depressed. Depression for me is very hard for me to recognize. I'm a little bit more comfortable with anxiety because I've just experienced so much of it. So it's, it's very familiar to me. Depression, although I have been depressed and I have experienced depression, my primary symptoms are. Have always been anxiety. But Abby will say, like, yeah, you know, I think that's depression. It's constantly like having that time to understand what we are feeling or having people in our lives, which is so important, who can give us that kind of feedback. You know, that's the real conversation there. You know, the real conversation is not like, oh, I have anxiety or, oh, I have depression.
0: And also neuroscience. Mags and I have really immersed ourselves in neuroscience because we find that that speaks to people. When we can show them what's actually happening in their brain, when I can show a functional MRI on a slide and say, this is what a brain on anxiety looks like. This is what a brain on depression looks like. It really helps. It helps people who don't experience, who are lucky enough to not have anxiety or depression say, wow, look at that light up. I didn't realize. I mean, it's sad that we have to have pictures to legitimize this, but it really helps. And so, you know, I mean, I'm constantly taking neuroscience courses and really educating myself as much as I can, because I find that, you know, talking about the science is one way to reach people who don't understand anxiety. And it also, it really, you know, we do a Tuesday night book club on Facebook with our people, and we always start with neuroscience. And the feedback we get is, wow, I was always so afraid of that. But you guys make it understandable so that now I don't feel so much shame. I can see that it's not my fault. I'm not flaky. I don't have a moral failing. My personality isn't off. None of these things that people have said to me are true. This is a disorder. It's not a decision. Oh, I love that. This is a disorder. It's not a decision. And that does circle
2: back around to, I guess, my reaction when on The Bachelor of how could somebody position it as, oh, you're just deciding to be this way when they've already disclosed to you that they have a disorder or a condition. But I think it's just that ignorance, like I mentioned. And I, I do believe that neuroscience does play a big role and it seems like we have a ways to go to really legitimize something like this, even if it's been around for a long time. I also think there's there's a, a lot of work that we need to do to break the stigmas. And to your point earlier, Abs, I, I think it's great that we're seeing more discussions around mental health, even if, from my opinion, sometimes it's used in a way that feels like a trend. I know it's not, but it's I see people kind of capitalizing it, I suppose, uh, you know, using it to make money in some ways that don't always feel authentic or about helping people you know we see this a lot in health of course like how can we make money from somebody's challenges in life that that's unsettling but on the plus side the ongoing conversation around this has been really wonderful but on the other side coming back to something i brought up earlier that i think is worth revisiting is what even the definitions of anxiety are I think maybe people are confused about that. Like to your point, Mags, when you're struggling to even identify something like depression, you know, maybe that's related to not being clear about what some things are, what the symptoms are, do you think? Or, you know, even the difference between being stressed versus anxious, perhaps the two of you could share what anxiety means to you. What have you learned from a scientific perspective, but also your personal experience of anxiety?
1: I think that, The way that both of us look at it is that anxiety itself is not a bad thing, right? That is why we get up in the morning. That's why we get dressed. (laughs) That's why, you know, a little bit of anxiety is sort of why we participate in the world. We try to get food and we try to make connections with people and we try to have a house to live in or an apartment. You know, those are the things that move us forward, some anxiety. And we always joke that we were giving a workshop one day and a much older woman was talking to us about how her, it was in Vermont and her car had spun out a couple of times on the way to the session. And she said, but I didn't, even when it was spinning out, I wasn't getting anxious. And, you know, I sort of was like, well, maybe she shouldn't be driving anymore because that anxiety, when our car's spinning out, we are supposed to feel anxious. We are supposed to feel like, "Uh oh, I'm in an emergency, right? That's our fight and flight response. And it's so important in keeping us safe. We always think anxiety enters the problem stage when it is making the decisions about where you go, who you see, and what you do. So when you are planning your life around your anxiety or canceling things because of your anxiety or deciding, I I can't go for this, or I can't go for that, or I can't try this because I'm going to be too anxious, we call that shrinking world syndrome often And it's really this idea that your world gets smaller due to your anxiety. And we don't just mean geographically, but certainly that happens. But we also mean emotionally because you start saying like, oh, my friends are all doing that. Not that you should always do what your friends are doing, but like, oh, I would love also to travel, but no, I can't get on a plane or I'll be too anxious to be there for a while. You know, so it's really that whole idea of how much your anxiety rules the roost,
2: as we say. Yes. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce. Plus, it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles, When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you wanna try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code Wellevator to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show. So send it over to me as soon as it's live. And that leads me to a subject that I want to hear more about. But first, I want to see
0: if Abs wants to add to that. Well, I was just going to say that when I wake up and anxiety is there, which happens from time to time, it's still hanging out. I will say, fine, you can be here, but you can't drive. Oh,
2: I love that. Yes. And I guess that leads kind of into this question I have about if you're going to really be present to how you're feeling each day, which is something I've started to become passionate about. If you I guess if you have the option to adjust your day based on how you're feeling, which to me is the ideal, right? And it's kind of sad that our society isn't necessarily set up for us to do that. You know, our mental health is not something that we have so much control over. At least for me, how it manifests for me is is sometimes I'm hit with a wave of anxiety or a low mood. I maybe depression. I, perhaps, Mags, like you, I, I struggle to even identify when it's fully there. Stress, even like it, the, the kind of nuances of, of the challenges that I'm having. And I've trained myself to take a moment to examine it. But there's a lot of times where I feel like I can't or I don't want to shift my day. Like, oh, I don't want to inconvenience somebody by canceling or postponing something. But in a way, I kind of wish that we were set up more to do that, to have more flexibility so that we can really respect ourselves. But then a fear comes up for me is like, what if it never goes away? What if I'm always going to feel anxious? What if this is just part of getting through life? And I'm curious as what your perspectives are. Do you think anxiety is something that once we have it, it, it's kind of permanent? Is anxiety something that we can quote cure or minimize? Does it just always fluctuate? Is it just like a, el- other elements of life where we just don't have, we're kind of learning to live with it? I think you brought up
1: a really good point in that that idea of being, of taking time every day to be really in touch with how you're feeling and what you need that day is so, so important. And it's not something that we automatically learn to do. It's something that we have to be really intentional about learning. And it's a constant practice. It's not like, oh, I got it. I know all my feelings. It's a constant practice of being able to quiet ourselves enough to know actually what we're feeling in our, and often those feelings are in our body, not just in our intellect. Knowing what we're feeling and how we want to manage what we're feeling. I have to say that, you know, those of us, Abby and I sort of say we're sort of wired anxious. (laughs) That's how our brains are wired. Like, I am going to be someone that, and so is Abby, I think is going to be someone that, you know, has anxiety and sometimes has depression. And this is part of who I am for the good things and the not so good things in that. But I do have to say that particularly with my anxiety, I find there's all sorts of things I can do to to help manage it, you know, the way I talk to myself and the things I do preventative, prevention-wise to keep myself from getting over-anxious, right? But I'm going to be anxious, but I I sort of have learned that for me, if I start avoiding things because I'm anxious or I decide not to do something due to my anxiety... I can have real problems with that. So the idea is that I can know what I'm feeling and still decide to go ahead with my day right? Because once, you know, occasionally that's not the case. Occasionally we all have to say like, "Uh uh-uh, not today. But 90, I would say for us, 98% of the time, you know, one of us can say, I'm pretty anxious, but I'm still going to get on that plane or I'm still going to go to the doctors. And because we know now how to kind of talk ourselves and sort of deal with our sensory systems in a way to get ourselves to still be able to function like that. So it's like a you know, it's a skill that you learn and that you practice.
0: Yeah. Our brand of happiness is
2: anxious happiness. Fascinating. I've never heard it put that way before. I'm very curious about social anxiety because this also ties into all of this is, is interacting with other people. And I think maybe for me, there's, there's ideas of, I tend to feel anxious just thinking about something I'm going to do socially, <laughs> even with the podcast podcast. Almost every time I, on the day of recording, I start to feel a little anxiety. And I'm sure there's like maybe performance anxiety. Maybe there's the fears that I'm, I'm not going to do a good job. But I also feel like a lot of tension in my body about connecting with new people, being in environments that I haven't been in, even in a kind of nuanced way where, yes, I've sat here at my computer. Yes, I've been at this literal physical place. But the environment of a social conversation, the energy of that is is a new environment. And that gives me anxiety. And I always feel fascinated after I finish recording an episode. I think to myself, wow, that wasn't so bad. Why did I feel so anxious about this? I'm not sure. Is that social anxiety would be part one of my question. And part two is If that is not social anxiety, I guess like the nuances or the true definition of social anxiety, I certainly feel like I've experienced that in in in-person events. Like that to me feels very clear. And I was not aware of that until maybe the past year or two. I think COVID actually helped me recognize how much social anxiety I had And that was fascinating. But I started to wonder, did I develop more social anxiety because I wasn't as exposed to people? Or was it always there? And because I wasn't as interacting with people as much as I used to, especially not in person, did I just become more aware of something that was always
0: there? Well, here's an interesting statistic for you. Before the pandemic, approximately 9% of the population identified as having social anxiety. Since the pandemic, that number has gone to almost 40%. So you are definitely not alone in feeling that the pandemic has not only made you more aware of possible social anxiety, but maybe even exacerbated it. I think that that's been the case for many, many people. And certainly our community really grew so much during the pandemic. A lot of our sufferers deal with social anxiety. And and just to find it a bit so people know what we're talking about, Social anxiety, it's not what people think. People think it's being shy or introverted, and that is not the case. You can be shy and not have any social anxiety. Social anxiety is actually a phobia of being judged. It's a phobia of evaluation. So people who experience social anxiety disorder are people who don't want to put themselves in situations where they feel that they're going to be judged by another person. That could be a public speaking situation, that could be a meeting at the office, that could be a podcast, it could be any situation, it could be going to a restaurant with someone and being afraid that, you know, you might, I don't know, drip some food on your shirt, and that you would be judged for that. These are all examples of social anxiety disorder, and it's not being antisocial. As a matter of fact, people with social anxiety, they really want to connect, and they sometimes are very lonely that they feel that they can't and that they have to give up some of that because of their anxiety. So it's a very misunderstood anxiety, social anxiety, because people think that it means that either you're antisocial and you don't want to be with people or you're a hermit. And it's not by choice. It's that fear of being judged or evaluated that causes people with social anxiety to avoid situations where they might be at parties or with other people, if that makes any sense. It makes a
2: lot of sense. And thank you for defining it that way, because that's a big eye opener for me. <laughs> so much in my life, people have said little things to me. Oh, you're antisocial. Why don't you want to come to this party? Why do you want to leave as soon as you get there? But at the more that I've become more self-aware, I notice that I walk into a party, an event of any type, and I'm like hit with this wave of anxiety. I feel it on the way there, but when I enter a room, it is really present for me. I often feel a desire to escape as quickly as possible, or to cope in some way or another? Like, can I latch on to this person where I can kind of like, maybe hide behind them, I'll let them do all the talking, and I'll like, let myself warm up I'll you know, and then I start to become hyper aware of myself, you know, what am I doing? What you know, how am I dressed? And, you know, am I on my phone too much? I think a lot of people also cope by being on their phone. I see the two of you nodding there. and And that also... Helps me feel less judgmental because I tend to get very irritated with people that spend a lot of time on their phones and social situations. But I would ask the two of you: do, Is that a big indicator of of social anxiety? Do people cope by looking down at their phone because they they want to be there because they're not antisocial? They want to be at the party or event wherever they're at, but they feel that anxiety, so they turn to their phone so that they can simultaneously be part of something but cope with how they're feeling. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely
1: think that's right. Some people even find, you know, texting helps because for a lot of people with social anxiety, doing something like ordering food or talking on the phone or making an appointment is very, very difficult because they feel like they'll stutter or they feel like they won't be clear or any of that. So social anxiety is pretty all encompassing. It doesn't just have to be about parties or public speaking. But one other thing that you said, just it it struck me, you talked about it before, like sort of discovering your own neurodivergence. And so one of the things that I think for some of us, and I include myself in this, gives us a lot of anxiety is that many of us who are anxiety sisters are also, we call ourselves sensory sisters, right? So we, our bodies, our brains are very, very either reactive to things that may not bother other people. That might be like labels on your shirt. It might be lights. For me, it's lights. Even sometimes sunlight can really start to bother me. It could be noise, you know, that you seem to hear more noise than other people do. For Abby, it's smell. She smells everything. So that goes along with neurodivergence. And it also goes along with anxiety because, because of the way our brains are wired, because of our amygdalas and our brains, we are always heightened. We're on high alert. And that means our senses are on high alert. Some of us, with those issues are sensory seekers too and we we may be both and at different times so some of us like you'll see people who need a lot of hugs not just for the connection but cuz they need the feeling on them or they need weighted blankets help calm them so all of that is kind of connected with social anxiety. Not that if you have sensory issues, you necessarily have social anxiety, but I know for me, like there'll be certain places where Abby and I will go to conferences or we'll go somewhere and I am just exhausted by it in a way that is really intense exhaustion. And it's not by the people so much, it's by the sensory input. I get very disorganized in my sort of thinking, my body feels it. Wow. So it's all like, especially for people with ASD, it's very connected the social, the sensory piece.
2: I, a lot's coming up for me as you're sharing that. And I'm so thrilled that you shared that because the ASD, when I did some self diagnosis and I've explored getting diagnosed professionally, I was shocked at how many ways I fall into the mm-hmm. spectrum. And for you sharing that, it's it's like this wave of relief, but also like a lot of intense emotions come up when you're faced with something that you've gone your whole life experiencing, but no one's ever pointed out. Because for me, people have criticized me for a lot of those things. And I imagine I'm not alone. I've seen you know, the antisocial thing like you brought up, like, oh, you're antisocial. So I internalize that. I must be antisocial. There must be something wrong with me. You know, the amount of people that have said little things like that, but also to your point, Mags, about the sensory things. I'm incredibly sensitive. Like the overhead lights drive me up. The lighting in general, I'm very particular about. It. I'm very sensitive to sounds. Sounds seem to irritate me. I pick up on sounds that other people don't seem to notice. And it's like drives me nuts. But a lot of times I feel like I have to pretend like I don't hear it because a lot of times in my life, I would bring up my feelings about lights and sounds and people would just disregard it. Like, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. It's not bothering me. Why should it bother you? I've been told that. In big and small ways throughout my whole life, and it wasn't until I started dig into this neurodivergence and this sense being highly sensitive, or just being sensitive to sensory things like that, it's simultaneously comforting, yet makes me very emotional because I feel sad for myself that I had to spend so much of my life thinking I was weird, or you know, there is something wrong with me, and that I had to pretend like it didn't bother me just to. Comfort others. I'm actually in a couple days going to one of the biggest events happening since the pandemic started. And I feel so much anxiety about it for a lot of the reasons you're mentioning. And I'm kind of curious how the two of you navigate in-person events, especially that are with large crowds, which can be really intense at times. But in convention centers, like I'm going to, I have a lot of my COVID anxiety that's coming with me, which is new. But I also have all the old things that I faced before COVID, which is the really poor lighting in convention centers, the tons of people around. I always attributed my Reactions to that as being introverted. I thought, oh, I'm just being drained. I'm an introvert. Like, I need time to go recover. But everything you're sharing, Mags, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if either that's it or it's I'm introverted and anxious. I'm introverted and neurodivergent. Like, this stuff is bothering me on a level that I don't know is it bothering other people. And I should actually pay attention to that versus trying to hide from that. So I'm curious, how have the two of you gone about those type of big events where they're very draining to you? What do you do if you can't, you know, I have a weighted blanket and (laughs) I wish I could bring my weighted blanket with me to the convention and just, or like wear a weighted robe and just walk around feeling comforted by that. But I, to my knowledge, can't do that. So what other things
0: have worked well for you in those environments? Mags and I are huge believers in something we call a spin kit. And we should first say why we call it a spin kit. For Mags and me and for many other anxiety sufferers, when our brains hear the word panic, we think it's a command. So, and, and that word, it's, it's fraught, right? I mean, you know, even just the concept of anxiety attack, it's a scary way to think about it. So we changed it, the term for anxiety, acute anxiety or panic to spinning, First of all, because it's an apt metaphor. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if you've ever suffered from it, you know, you do feel like you're spinning. And second of all, because, you know, the way that we communicate about things shapes our experience of them. So if we can come up with a kinder, gentler way of talking about things that are scary to us, we can take some of that fear and anxiety out of even discussing it. So anyway, so we believe in a spin kit, which is a portable first aid kit for anxiety. Just like if you have an allergy, you would carry an EpiPen. We carry spin kits. And a spin kit is, you can keep it in a bag, in a box, whatever you can carry with you. Mag's had a Ziploc for the longest time. I think now she's graduated to a makeup bag. But, you know, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. But what you want to have in your spin kit are the things that are going to soothe your senses. So let's just say you mentioned that bright lights can really affect you. Maybe you want to have one of those nice eye pillows in your spin kit so that you can find a place that's a little not as bright and put that eye pillow on for a few minutes to kind of take a break from all of that sensory activity in a convention. For me with the smell, I always carry a piece of fabric that has lavender on it so that when I'm starting to smell things that I don't want to smell, then I can put my fabric up to my nose and I can smell lavender and that's going to soothe my senses that are in overdrive. Another type of thing you might want to have in your spin kit is something to distract you so that while you're spinning. You have something to keep your hands busy, let's just say, like a fidget spinner. Mags always brings her crochet needles with her, no matter where she is, because she knows that if she starts to feel like she's spinning, then she can start with the crochet. It's just enough to distract her. It's tactile. So her hands are busy. And, you know, we don't believe you can stop panic or anxiety. You can't halt it. What you pay attention to grows. But what you can do is ride it out. And so you want to have things in your spin kit that will help you ride it out. It may be, like for me, I have pictures of my cats. When I look at my cats, I feel better. I see their faces, it's soothing to me. If Mags were to see faces of my cats, it would make her panic. So she wouldn't keep those in her spin kit. But anyway, you can see everyone has a different spin kit. And also a a great thing to keep in your spin kit is anything that might help you with symptom relief. If you are someone like Mags who gets really bad stomach situation whenever you're spinning, so she will carry with her GAS-X or Tums, or Mylanta, something to settle her stomach, or, or some ginger tea, anything that can soothe her stomach. You know, like if you happen to take a sedative, then that would be something you keep in your spin kit so that if you're really having a racing heart or whatever, then you can have a sedative. So all these things are. It would be different for each person. But you want to have this kit. You want to be prepared for panic. That's a, the big takeaway. Because if you're walking around with a spin kit, then your anxiety can't sneak up on you. Just by the definition, by you carrying a spin kit with you, what you're saying is, I'm ready. If anxiety's going to be here, I'm ready for you. And taking away that element of surprise, that shock value, it cuts the anxiety in half. It really takes the power away from it. So we are huge believers in spin kits.
1: I also want to say that, you know, from the sensory perspective, I totally understand that it's disheartening to think of like sort of that, your needs weren't recognized and you were struggling with all this stuff, often blaming yourself. The powerful thing that I have seen having a child with ASD is that you can start to, just like Abby said about the spin kid and about panic, you can start to shape your days and your time a little bit more once you know what you need. So It's like, okay, if I'm going to, you know, if we go to a conference, Abby always knows like water is very soothing for me. So she'll always say to me, you know, why don't you go first? Why don't you go for a swim, you know, after the day? Or I'll say to her at some point in the day, I am like, things are starting to spin around me. Like the voices are starting to reverberate in my head, literally. I need to go, I'm going to walk. I'm going to take a walk and bring us lunch or... I'm going to go up to the room for a few minutes, you know, so we kind of can spell each other out, you know, and she has other kinds of things that she asks of me and I'll, I'll say, you know, I'll deal with this and you deal with this. And so that it's kind of like, once you start to understand your needs, you also can start to understand how to pace yourself throughout the day. You know, if I I see it, you know, my son, Movies are very, very loud for him, but you know, when his friends want to go to the movies, he doesn't want to be the only one not going to the movies. So he does have to think a little bit about what do I need to do before I go to the movie? Like to sort of, what kind of calm space do I need before this, you know, or after something like, how do I, so how do I pace myself? Because it is a sensory world and the movies are not going to turn down the volume for him you know unfortunately or the lights in the convention center aren't going to turn down for me in general so it's it's kind of yes. you know that pacing piece is really really important when the sensory issues are really strong
2: it's interesting hearing that in the context of how I'll be at this event in in about 48 hours and i've actually felt like i had to start pacing myself mm-hmm. weeks or months mm-hmm. ago You know, and a lot of people have also pointed out something about me that it's really fascinating to think of in terms of what you just said, Mags, is that people see me as being very prepared Mm -hmm. and hyper organized. That to me is incredibly comforting and soothing. I feel better when I have the information because my brain starts to think about like how I will be in the context of that. I've been called a control freak a lot throughout my life, which is a very, harmful, hurtful term. And I think people say that because they, they see me as being controlling, but really for me, it's coping. And to your point, pacing, I feel the need to be hyper prepared because then I feel that I can pace myself better versus I feel extremely anxious in settings where I've had zero preparation. When plans are changed on me, it is really hard And that's another thing that I've been teased or just this lack of understanding. Like, oh, what, you know, you got to go with the flow, Whitney. You've got to be able to adjust on the fly. Those type of terms, also to your point, Mags, like we're not living in a world that's set up for someone with our types of brains because they're disregarding the fact that that is key for us to feel good is in order to be prepared for something, it's soothing, it's not controlling. And Abs, I saw you pointing at yourself. I'm curious, how does that manifest for you and how
0: do you manage that? I'm proud to be a control freak. I am because that's part of my personality. The people in my life who love me also respect the fact that I need to be in control. And Mags and I always joke around, our relationship is so great in our business because she doesn't want to be the boss. And I don't think I could work with someone who wouldn't let me be the boss. So, you know, we work really beautifully together. We're like yin to yang for each other. But I absolutely need certainty, I need planning, I need charts, I need an Erin Condren. I need, you know, I need all these things are really important to me and they make me feel good when I keep track of everything that I'm doing. And when I plan for the week and send Maggie the activity report about what we're doing for Anxiety Sisters that week, that's because I need it. It's not because Maggie needs it. She has her own system, but I, my system is, it needs to be written down far in advance. There needs to be confirmation letters. You know, I want as much information as I can get ahead of time. So I have to
1: say it's something really funny between us because I actually have tons of executive functioning issues. Like I'm not good with executive functioning and organization and Abby's excellent with it, luckily. But, you know, Abby will say to me, like, if we're going to meet up somewhere, you know, I'll say like, okay, can we decide on like Tuesday? She'll be like, no, no, no. I have to know beforehand. Like I can't decide and then just go, you know, which I totally know and respect, or she'll give me a ton of charts. Like every time I'll see her, she'll be like, I have a surprise for you. And it will be like a notebook full of charts. Now, for me, a chart is fairly useless because my mind is not, unfortunately, my mind does not understand them. In a I, you know, I understand them, but not fully. Like they're I understand them intellectually, but not they don't really make a lot of sense to me a lot of times. And so for me, I'm like, oh, okay. And she has this huge notebook for me, just like full of charts and this and that. And it's, and, you know, and I'm like, oh, great. Excellent. You know, and I'm appreciative of, of all that she does. But, you know, it's funny, the things that soothe each of us. And the things that each of us need are really different. And like Abby said, it, the nice thing for us is that they sort of complement each other because if plans change, I don't care. You know, so it's like I can take the lead on that. But, you know, and Abby can take the lead on making sure we're organized. And that all kind of works out well for us as a duo. But, you know, it's definitely kind of funny at times. Oh, I can
2: relate. <laughs> yeah.
1: We both appreciate the thing the other has that we don't. So that's like a very important part of our relationship.
0: Yes. Yeah. Somebody who really appreciates being in control. I really respect and sometimes envy Mags' ability to go with the flow. Like I think to myself, wow, that must be so cool because I don't know how to do it. <laughs> so I watch what Maggie's doing, and it looks scary to me. <laughs> it does not look like something I'd want to do, but yet there's, it's a real superpower. And in that same way, Mags will look at me being hyper-organized, and we just call each other Felix and Oscar, you know, because we work so well together, even though we both have completely different strengths.
2: I am the abs of most groups that I'm in. It's interesting because a lot of times people are grateful for that, A lot of people turn to me and think, "Oh, thank God, you you're doing that because I don't want to do." And people say their brain doesn't work that way. I'm a spreadsheet person. I I love you know, and abs. I'm sure you and I are so similar in these ways, like spreadsheets bring me joy in a lot of work environments. I'm the person doing that. And I've learned over time that it's actually pretty rare. And maybe that should have been a signal for being neurodivergent. But was also interesting is some people are grateful for it, but as I mentioned, a lot of people have ridiculed me a bit for this type of behavior. And in this moment reflecting on that, I think, well, that's because their brains don't work that way. So of course they're going to see me as odd. And I also, up until recently... Maybe I was trying too hard to force them into being like that too. The context that Mags is sharing of receiving something and appreciating it, but knowing that it doesn't work for you, Mags, is really key because I think I, for so long, was trying to fit people into my own box. Like, oh, well, you should be into spreadsheets too and we need to be organized and getting really frustrated with people that aren't doing it my way. And they would simultaneously come back and be frustrated with me for wanting to do it my way. So the way that you two have learned to coexist is a really great example and something that I strive to be more like. I think the reason that I would get frustrated or resentful or some of these negative emotions is because I didn't realize until recently that was representing my fears of not being able to cope, my fears of being anxious. Like, I don't want to feel anxious. And so when somebody would reject my ideas and my ways of doing things, deep down, I w- I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to perform. I wouldn't be able to get through something. I would be uncomfortable and I would be just frustrated. Like, no, let me be comfortable. I think deep down, that's what I wanted. I was seeking the control in order to feel comfortable, in order to get by. And maybe it's also that built up resentment of going so long in my life of being pushed, my needs being pushed aside. I think a lot of us that have experienced that maybe have some sort of trauma up to that of of thinking like, well, I don't matter. My needs don't matter. They're not going to accommodate me. In fact, a recent guest on my show, we are talking about this, even in terms of food, you know, I have very specific dietary choices and preferences, and I've been used to people not accommodating that. I'm used to people mocking me for it. I'm used to showing up at restaurants or parties and not having anything to eat. I'm used to having to prepare and bring my own. And there's a certain amount of like frustration that boils down below the surface of feeling like my needs aren't being met or I'm not represented and I'm not, I don't matter because I'm different. And I imagine the two of you have gone through that personally, but also in people in your life and the people in your communities. I'd love to hear more examples of how that's manifested
0: for you. How we've seen, Neurodivergence in our community?
2: Yeah. Yeah. More that that feeling of being misunderstood and the outcast, how you maybe you two have experienced that. And and do you feel a sense of almost or have you felt? I am kind of guessing that you don't currently because of your work, but have you felt senses of like frustration or even resentment because it's so disappointing that your needs haven't been met or that you have felt like
0: an outcast? Has that shown up? Yeah, Mags and I started the Anxiety Sisterhood because it was the community we needed. We were feeling very alone. We were a sorority of two. Now we have over 200,000 members around the world. And by the way, 30% of our members identify as male. So gender doesn't matter. Any gender, any amount of anxiety, you are welcome in the sisterhood. (laughs) That's just Mags in my experience. So we call it Anxiety Sisters. It seems a little more catchy than Anxiety Community. But we developed the Anxiety Sisterhood because we wanted a place where we could feel we were with our people. The reason that Mags and I fell so deeply for each other when we met was because we were each other's kind of people, even though we have very different needs. We had a lot of of similar experience with anxiety, and that made us compatible because our experience of the world was through (laughs) an anxious lens. So, you know, after 35 years of friendship and and more than friendship, sisterhood, you know, what we realize is that that community that Mags and I had together was the single most healing thing that either one of us experienced, despite the fact that we have each been on medication, that we have each been in therapy, that we've each gone to psychiatrists, that we have done all the is that we t- mentioned earlier. And when we follow all of our own techniques and do all of our, we do our breathing, we do our meditation, we take walks in the park, we do all those things. But the most healing thing for us has been our connection with each other because we both felt so alone. It's very lonely to have anxiety. It's very lonely to be neurodivergent. So yeah, at this point, we don't feel alone anymore because we're in a group of 200,000 people. So we feel very much like we found our people. And we hear from our followers and our members that they found their people too. And that's really gratifying. And we want to keep doing that and build it even bigger so that no one is feeling like they're the only ones. We don't want anyone to feel the sense of being outside of the tribe because that's what shame is. Shame is defined as not feeling like you belong with your group. And there's nothing more debilitating and anxiety provoking than shame. So That's really, I don't know if that answered your question, but we did for many years feel very outside of the mainstream, outside of the group, so to speak, but we don't anymore. And we're hoping that our community can make it so that lots of people don't anymore.
2: And I'm curious though, how does that carry with you if it does Outside of your community, though, because they're not always going to be there. So when you do go to an event, and I'm thinking so Mm -hmm. much in the context of this event I'm going to, you know, I'll get there and I'll feel alone because I don't have all the other people that understand anxiety around me. But so now I have to enter into a space where I feel alone again. I feel misunderstood again. So even though you might not feel that isolation or, or difference in the context of your community, What happens outside of it? And what's the ripple effect that that community has had on your lives? That's a great question. Because I think, I think, Abby, you would agree with this.
1: But I think that when you've had the support of community, we use the word community all the time. And people are like, snooze, tell me how to do this or tell me how to do that. I don't want to hear about community, right? But like so much research and so much of our personal experience, but so much research shows that the unbelievable effects of community on our health in every aspect of our health. I mean, you are better off having community and support around you than if you were just a gym rat who never smoked. You're better off like being a fat smoker, you know. I'm not using fat in a pejorative way. I'm identifying with myself, although I'm not a smoker. But you know, you're know, you better off doing all these sort of health, quote unquote, things that aren't necessarily great for your health rather than being lonely or not having social support. That's like one of the key to your physical and your mental health, which are really the same thing, is having that community and that social support. And when you have it, you have a base in which to go out into the world with. So it's similar to, you know, you see a child with a healthy family and those children, you know, can go and adults then can go out into the world and carry that family within them, even if they're not right next to them, right? We don't all have that, but community does much the same thing for you in that you have you know, a real understanding of yourself. And so you go to the conference and you understand why you're feeling what you're feeling. You're anticipating your needs. You're thinking about how can I take care of myself here in a really healthy way? You're looking for other people that you can connect with because you know that there must be someone else out there, right? And that you'll probably find someone maybe maybe not but you like you've come with all these tools then you know and so that is what community does and in america we're such an individualist culture and we vastly vastly underestimate the power of community you know it's just one of the most powerful things around <laughs> we constantly get notes from people saying i thought i was the only one that's a note we get almost on a daily basis. And it could be like, oh, there's a weird symptom. Like I was feeling like I'm not quite in my body. You know, when you get very anxious, you might feel that way. Like we, people call it disassociation or depersonalization. We tend to call it floating. You kind of feel like you're not quite in yourself. And people will say, oh, I've had that for 40 years, but I didn't know other people felt that way. I thought it was just me. I thought, and I was afraid to tell anyone because- They would think there was something massively wrong with me. Or I tried to tell someone and no one understood. And for people, we can hear it. Just knowing that other people have the same struggle and situation that you do, it makes all the difference in how we approach the world, I would say.
0: And just as a point of logistics, Whitney, you now know that you have two anxiety sisters over here who understand you very well think you're a beautiful person and love your neurodivergent mind because we have similar ones ourselves. So you can text us or email us or get on our Facebook page when you take a break at the conference and say, these people are driving me crazy. They don't understand me. And we'll say, yeah, we know we get you. We're, we're, We're here. We're with you in spirit. And that's what we do with our community. We act as each other's designated anxiety buddies or dabs where You know, you should see us on Thanksgiving and Christmas every year. Mags and I spend 24 hours of those two days on Facebook and on Instagram so that we can be there for all the people that are having such difficulty when they have to go to their families and they have to be with people that don't understand them and they're all struggling. And we sit there on Facebook and have the best conversations with these people. And everybody, people will say, I'm in the bathroom at my Thanksgiving dinner. I had to get over here to talk to you people who understand me. And it's really very connecting. So even just being able to reach out in the community when you're in a place where you might feel misunderstood, that's so powerful too, because you know, you have a tribe. I was thinking about Mm
2: -hmm. that as you were talking, even just the idea of it, the visual, like I almost think of it as like having someone on your shoulder Mm -hmm. that you can turn to when you have those moments and knowing that you can go to your phone, as we talked about before, and, and check in with somebody. And maybe that's part of the the kit that you put together. The spin kit, I, I absolutely love. That is like one of the best pieces of advice I've had in a while because I actually have my own version of a spin kit right here at my mm-hmm. desk. I have aromatherapy, yes. which it makes a massive difference for me. I always have something to fiddle with. Right now, it's this pen but I usually have like a stone, something. It's very soothing to have in my fingers, but I've never thought to bring this with me to an event. For me, it could be putting something in my pocket. Like maybe I'll bring a a stone or a crystal with me. I find that very comforting. And just being able to hold on to it and move it in my fingers when I'm at this event, it's more subtle. And I, or, you know, some people will do that with jewelry, like a ring or something. I've seen even really cool fidget rings, but spraying myself with a scent, dabbing underneath my nose since I'll be wearing a mask at this event, putting it on my mask so I can breathe in the scent, which actually is a cool benefit to wearing a cloth mask or something because it's right there over your nose. You can smell and block out scents. I imagine for you, wearing masks to protect yourself from COVID are also kind of cool to protect yourself from other bad smells, which I found to be a little side benefit. So thank you so much. I that's needed because these next forty eight hours, I can feel the anxiety building in me. And there's one last thing I wanted to touch upon today before I wrap up this wonderful conversation, which could just go on and on. i'm I'm so grateful that you have that incredible community. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes for anyone. I assume, is it open for anyone to join this community? So if I link to it, people can click in and easily go in there, fantastic. I'll be doing that myself. And the notes for this entire episode are at wellevator.com, that's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We'll link to that anything else we mention here so you can get all of these great resources to support your journey. The last subject that came up in my mind that I wasn't even planning to cover but as we're talking about anxiety I also think about attachment styles and I'm curious if this is something that you focus on in terms of our relationships, our romantic relationships generally. There's been a lot of work. I've actually covered this on the show with at least one guest in the past about attachment styles and Those are generally broken down into three different types. There's the anxious attachment style. There's the avoidant attachment style and the secure attachment style. And of course, it's probably no secret that I have an anxious attachment style in in romance as well. And I don't know if it's, if you're an anxious person, if you're automatically anxiously attached, is, is this something either of you have looked into, but it's something to reflect on and I imagine at least seeing how your anxiety could show up in your relationships, even if it's not about your attachment style, but like, you know, being in those romantic dynamics, I, we feel very vulnerable, may Feel may feel incredibly triggered. I know I have been when I don't feel understood by my partner, the shame can really manifest the frustration of not being able to communicate. So I'm curious about, how relationships, romantic relationships specifically come up in your work when it comes to handling anxiety.
1: I think we have people in all different life stages, you know, from teenagers on really that we deal with, you know, and definitely all kinds of health issues, mental health issues, and I hate calling it that because I don't think mental and physical health are so different. We don't think that. But um, all different kinds, you know, depression, anxiety, OCD, panic attacks, phobias, all of those come into relationships. You know, I hear what you're saying about the different styles of connecting. And I think what we try to focus on is how to communicate with your partner or the other, it doesn't have to be a romantic partner, the other people in your life that love you and that you're in close relationship with, because those are equally important relationships. So we try to focus on, you know, sort of how to communicate what you're feeling and what you need. And we talk about that a lot. We have We have a book, The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide, and that's a place we talk about that a lot because that's such a big issue for so many people is how we communicate and how we express our needs. So I think that's where that's sort of where our focus is more. Although I do, I am familiar with the attachment styles. I just sometimes I struggle with label, you know, I think both of us struggle with labels, (laughs) you know, because we can all find ourselves in all these things, right? Like we can all find ourselves in, in the healthy attachments and the anxious attachments and the, you know, we can all find ourselves in all these places. And so sometimes I think the labels can help us understand certain things. And sometimes I think labels can be, can really limit us. Not that I'm saying those labels limit us. I'm just, we just sort of really try to focus on, okay, like, where do I take this now? You know, how do I continue to make choices about my own life? How do I continue to find my own sense of agency within the context of where I am
2: and where I can grow to? I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shoutouts. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit zencaster.com. That's Z E N C A S T R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for the show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks.
0: We always say, To our community, to really anyone who will listen to us, (laughs) that one size does not fit all. In fact, one size might not fit the same person two days in a row. We've had that experience too.
1: (laughs) Certainly not us, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we really embrace that philosophy, and it fits with the idea of the different styles of attachment. The different we've had people asking us about, you know, personality type. I mean, there's so many different taxonomies out there ways that we can sort people and including in the diagnostic manual, right? The DSM sorts us very nicely. I have a couple of those sortings for myself, right? I mean, you know, the thing is that we really believe that everyone is so different and everyone is beautifully different. We want to celebrate that difference. So we try to, that's why, you know, we talk about not having one particular technique for anything. We have hundreds of techniques because what worked for you on Monday might not work for you on Tuesday. And what works for you, Whitney, may not work for me. Works for Maggie, may not work for you either. In other words, we all are so different, but we want to celebrate that. We think that where Western culture has gone wrong is in not celebrating that. And so we do try to the best of our abilities to avoid any system of sorting we do go through the effort to explain to people what the labels mean, like whatever diagnosis you're given, it's important to understand the lingo because you have to be your own advocate. So you need to understand the system, but as much as possible to allow yourself the freedom to fit in lots of categories.
2: That is a fantastic way to wrap up this conversation. I'm, I'm so thrilled that you brought that up. I love this idea of, not only one size doesn't fit all, but that we as individuals are constantly changing. So who we were even five minutes ago can shift. And that goes back around to us being so present and doing our best to make room in our life for that fluctuation. Just like we have different size clothing to wear, (laughs) you know, uh, when our bodies are one shape or another, or when we're feeling confident versus you know, when maybe we we feel less confident. I mean, it's nice to have different things that match the way that you're feeling in every moment. And one thing I've been really working on is giving myself breathing room. One thing I added into my schedule is actually time blocks for energy. I, I started to take note on when I felt low energy and I put it on my calendar. No one can book during that time. No one can schedule anything that is my time because I wanna accommodate myself whether I'm low energy or not, right? I'm noticing my patterns, but I've also learned that it's not always easy easy to predict. Mm -hmm. So just by having a block of time every day, at least one block of time for wherever I'm at has really made a big difference. And Mags, it sounds like you can relate to this too. Oh, oh, definitely. And I was so
1: much thinking I'm a social worker and there's been, and so I've learned so many different theories. And one of the things that always really hits me is that what you were saying, which is, we don't stay the same, right? So it's like, oh, you have this attachment style or that attachment style. We don't stay exactly the same. Hopefully we grow throughout our lives and we also interact With different people in different ways. So I know like there's this idea, particularly in Western culture that, you know, I have this attachment style and therefore what whatever situation I'm in, I'm going to express that. But a lot of research hasn't really borne that out, that different people trigger different things in us. And some trigger really healthy things in us and some trigger more unhealthy things in us. And we are triggering them. Like we're, Abby always says we're doing a dance with our partners. You know, we're in this constant dance and there are great parts of the dance and less great parts of the dance, you know, and you're, and you're hoping that it's a good dance or overall, but just that idea that, you know, we're much more fluid as human beings. And that's that community piece too. Like I mean, I'm sure you felt it like get with the right people and you're not so introverted or you're not so shy or you're, you know, it's just like you feel like yourself, you know, you find yourself, not that there's anything wrong with being introverted or shy, but I mean, it's like, it's all about who you're with at the time. And I think the same as with romantic relationships, you know, that, but it sounds like you you're doing a lot of exploration, which is amazing. We are always too about like who you are and what, how you want to be in this world, you know, what you need and how you want to interact in this world. And that's, you know, something that never stops. We're just a teeny bit older than you, just a couple of years. <laughs> that was a joke for anyone who can't see us. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully that never stops for any of us this coming into
2: ourselves more and more. Yes, I hope so too. And it's such a great reminder that even that visual of being fluid, Mm. I think about myself, but I also think about in terms of other people. Mm. And this conversation has really reminded me to be gentle with myself, but really mindful of other people I'm interacting with and not making assumptions. Something that came up was not assuming that, the people that I interact with are going to be the same as they were the last time Mm -hmm. I interacted with Mm them. And I don't know, it's such a, that goes back into these uh, definitions we're Mm -hmm. talking about and these categories that we put people into as if they're not constantly changing as well. So if we could all just get into that fluid mindset of knowing that people are going through so many shifts, second to second, (laughs) that anything could shift within them and within their lives to ground ourselves in, in our self-awareness but communication skills that's that's really one of the big takeaways and that power of community too of, of having these supportive spaces where we can practice mm-hmm. that awareness practice, that openness and discovery and acceptance and everything that you're embodying through your work and I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything we've explored today. I'm grateful for the resources, your wonderful community, your book. As I mentioned, I'm going to link to both for anyone who really resonated with this conversation too. Please go check it out. I will put it all at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You'll find a full transcript. If you want to go back and read anything, one thing I've learned over time is some people pick up information by reading. Some people prefer to listen or watch. So I'm trying to cover all those spaces. Eventually there'll be the YouTube video. It might be a little after this episode comes out, but it'll all be there for you. And thank, thank you, you, Mags and Abs, for being here today, but continuing to create such supportive spaces and resources for people. It's deeply needed and appreciated.
1: All right, Abs. So I have a new organized bestie now. <laughs> I'm and you know if You're, I don't like like you're right there. Like yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I Abza uh, don't mean to compete with you, but I I will compliment. you. She knows you. <laughs>
1: how to use computers and
0: explain it to me. <laughs> oh my god! I just want to take Whitney out to lunch so she and I can discuss all our different organizational hacks. I bet we were. Ball. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh wow! You were triggering. <laughs> There's like a something in my brain that goes off. I'm like, yes, please. I get so much pleasure from that. Oh, me too. <laughs> so count me in.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W E L L E V A T R.com.